So you've had a suspect spot removed from your skin and the test showed that it was melanoma. Now that's life-changing, it's frightening and stressful. But just maybe you're one of nearly a third of people who have a melanoma that might not behave badly. Hi, I'm Claire Blake and you're listening to Body Lab. This is a QAMR Berghofer Medical Research Institute podcast. Professor David Whiteman is a world leader in skin cancer research. He developed QSkin, the largest study ever on skin cancer. He showed regular sunscreen could cut melanoma rates in Australia by a third. And for more on that, you can go back and listen to his earlier podcast in the series. But today he's back with something quite astonishing. Some melanomas may require a different diagnosis and treatment. They could have done with you back in the 5th century, David. Welcome. (laughs) Thank you, Claire. It's good to be back. Is that when they discovered it, the 5th century, or is it a little bit later? Well, melanomas have been described by various clinicians over the eons, but really it became scientifically discovered in the late 1800s when the pathologists had a better understanding of what these cancers are all about. And I guess that was posthumously. Largely posthumously. It was pretty rare, wasn't it? Melanoma was pretty rare. There are several reasons for that. Melanomas typically occur at their most abundant in older age groups. So when people used to die at a younger age, there were fewer older people getting cancers of any kind, including melanoma. But melanomas become really common in uh, Australia, New Zealand and the US because the diaspora of the English, Scottish, Irish, Welsh, the Northern Europeans into these subtropical environments. And it's really that mismatch between a person's pigmentation and the amount of sun exposure that they receive as a consequence of their place of residence. Those two factors coming together, susceptibility and a harsh environment, has led to this increasing rate, you might say an explosion of melanomas in these fair-skinned people uh, living closer to the equator than they were originally evolved to live in. Women were head to toe covered up at that time in the 1800s, weren't they? Yeah, so you're right. In addition to the migration issue, there's the behavioural and cultural issues. So in the post-war era really is when people had leisure time for the first time and when people had the means of getting to recreational places like the beach, the motor car opens up the Great Australian you know, weekend at the beach and then people started to crave having a tan. Prior to that, tans were seen as something undesirable if you were middle class or upper class. It was a sign of being an outdoor worker and no one wanted to be mistaken for that if they could avoid it. So a whole range of cultural and geographical and ancestral factors contributed to this high rate of melanoma in Australia, New Zealand and the US. So you're not going to be out of work in the near future, are you? Because it's just getting worse and worse. Well, uh, yeah, it is getting worse, but uh, hopefully we can turn this around and, you know, the primary prevention campaigns for which Australia leads the world are having an effect. The environment, uh, people are very conscious in their design now in um, recreational spaces, in schools, in workplaces that you need to provide shade and it's actually legislated. So the generations that are coming after us are going to have more awareness and more opportunities for protection. So we would hope that all of that leads to lower rates of melanoma in the future. You're hopeful, but when you go to the Gold Coast, you see kids sunbaking, rubbing oil on. Yeah, well, being an epidemiologist, I kind of take a a mental uh, head count when I'm at the beach many weekends of the year. And in fact, while it's not perfect, particularly in the younger generation, a lot of kids are, are covered up really well by their parents. So kids in rashies and sunsuits and Legionnaires hats. 
All of the lifeguards and lifesavers are really well covered up. All of the fishermen, actually, most of the fishermen that you see, the blokes out with their rods and reels, actually are pretty well covered. Um, the surfers are mostly wearing rashies now. So, yep, there are still youngsters in bikinis and speedos, you know, lying on the beach. But they're not the majority anymore. And I know when I was a kid, I mean, no one covered up at the beach. And people were just red raw and peeling after parking themselves in the sun all day. So we have come a long way. I, I see very much fewer sunburned people than I used to see on the beach. I still see people tanned, but I think a lot of them are actually wearing sunscreen as well that I can't see with my eyes. So I don't think the skin is being exposed and roasted in the same way that it was 40 years ago. And most of the people who are older and are really head to toe covered, they've had a first-hand experience. And they're the sort of people you've been following. Now, in your latest published paper, you have new findings from this study. And it's really interesting for those people who have had a melanoma or anything removed, this is going to be great information. Yeah, so one of the consequences of Australia having a high rate of melanoma is that there's high awareness both amongst the population but also amongst doctors and clinicians. So Australian doctors are fantastic at doing skin checks and finding melanomas. What we're starting to understand and discover is in, in fact that doctors are so good at finding melanomas, they're actually finding melanomas that probably have always existed but just were never aggressive melanomas so basically what we now think is that there are two kinds of melanomas they're indistinguishable to the naked eye they're indistinguishable in our genetic analysis to the pathologist they look identical under the microscope so we're sort of inferring that there are these two types of melanomas one type probably the majority are the aggressive invasive potentially lethal melanomas that will kill you if you leave them untreated. But there's also a group of melanomas that look exactly the same as that first set, but for whatever reason, they don't invade the skin, they don't burrow into the blood vessels, and they don't spread and kill you. The challenge is when you go looking for melanomas on the skin, you find both types because they look the same. You can't tell them apart. And what we're finding is probably up to a third of the melanomas that are out there are actually in that second category of the well-behaved or indolent melanomas that don't invade and aren't potentially lethal. So this presents a new problem. How do we deal with the things we find on the skin? We don't want to sort of over-treat people unnecessarily. If, you know, if we could tell at the point of diagnosis that this was a benign melanoma, that it wasn't going to spread, you could just leave it there. But at the moment, we can't take that risk. We just don't know. We can't pick them apart. It's an interesting new problem. And I guess you're working on what makes it decide whether it's going to be a badly behaved melanoma. Is it genetic? Is it sun exposure? Are you anywhere along the line with that? Um, we're along the line in terms of thinking about and speculating on what it might be. But yeah. trying to address the problem is actually really hard because the problem we have is that once we've cut out the melanoma, we'll never know which one it was. We'll never know at this point how it was going to behave because it's now in a jar of formalin and it's no longer in the body. And so we don't know what it was going to do. So we have to come up with new ways of trying to study this. It's, it's not it's an easy quite thing. unethical to leave it there and see. You can't leave it there. In fact, no GP will leave a lesion like that. And so they're kind of damned if they do, damned if they don't. You know, on the one hand, there's people like me saying, well, potentially up to a third of melanomas can be left. But on the other hand, they've got lawyers and patients saying, you can't leave that melanoma. If you leave that melanoma 
and one person has a bad outcome, that's a terrible thing to happen. And it is a terrible thing to happen. So trying to work out the best way of addressing that question of what makes some melanomas lethal and some melanomas go to sleep is going to require some thoughts. It may end up being something that happens both in the test tube, animal studies, and any kind of... We're going to have to do a lot of work. Do animals get melanomas naturally? They do. Uh, not commonly, because most mammals have uh, skin types that are a bit different to ours, and they're covered in fur generally, and that provides a lot of protection. But there certainly are animals that get melanomas, including cats and dogs can get them, and goats and other things. But usually on the hairless parts of the body, lips, noses, eyelids, that sort of thing. How did your study give you this information about this third of melanomas? Yes, yeah, so it's a good question, and we're building on other work that other people have done. Mm. But really, our study design came down to that issue of if you go looking for things, you find them. So what we wanted to do was look at people, investigate those people in our survey who had had a skin examination in the years just before joining our study. So we asked people, have you had all of your skin examined by a doctor in the past three years? And about 70% of people in our study had said, yes, I've been to a GP, I've had a full body skin check, and that was me done. And 30% hadn't had that skin check. So then we followed up those two groups of people over time, and we made sure that statistically we adjusted for all of the factors that might lead someone to go and get a skin check. So, you know, people who have fair skin, a family history, that sort of stuff, are more likely to get a skin check and also makes them more likely to get melanoma. So we had to remove that effect mm. through statistical adjustment. After doing all of that, the people in that skin screened group had a 30% higher rate of melanoma on their skin. They were found to be 30% higher and that effect persisted for the next seven years. So those people are under a surveillance effect where their skin is being examined and they're finding more and more lesions. Presumably those same lesions are present in the other people, but because they're not going to the doctor to have them found, the only melanomas that are found in the unscreened group are the ones that are actually changing shape, itchy, bleeding, and are coming to clinical attention because they're aggressive and invasive melanomas. So we're, we're surmising that the difference in the rates of melanoma in those two groups is due to these indolent melanomas that have been found because of detection activity or screening activity. And it wasn't a small sample. This is the 40,000 people over yeah. nine years? Uh, yeah, over nine years of follow-up. So it's it's a big sample. And there's in this series, there's over 1,600 melanomas that occurred in our study over that nine-year period. So it's a pretty compelling finding. The challenge we have at the moment is of those extra additional 30%. We don't know where in that pool of melanomas those melanomas are. So it's a bit of a, uh, a conundrum now as to how to move forward on this. So we have the tumour blocks. We can actually run analyses on these, but you know they cost money. So we have to be really strategic about how we go about analysing those melanomas. I'm just thinking about the implications for this in other cancers. Well, it definitely happens in other cancers. In fact, melanoma is a bit slow off the... Um, out of the blocks on this. It's been found for breast cancers. So there's been, back in the 1990s, huge trials were done for mammography to, you know, to test whether having a breast scan, you do that enough people, whether you find enough cancers early to save lives. And you do save lives when you do a mammography screening program, but you also find a lot more breast cancers. 
And presumably those excess breast cancers also occur in the unscreened arm, but they don't come to attention because a woman never feels a lump and never has any symptoms or signs and just lives with an indolent breast cancer for the rest of her life and it's never picked up. So screening finds things that otherwise would go undetected. Yeah. And those studies were done more than 25 years ago and they've followed up those women for the last quarter of a century and there is this excess fraction of overdiagnosed breast cancers of around 15% in breast cancer. It's around 15 to 20%. Well, your colleague, Mandy Spurtle, got yeah. some amazing statistics and they know now that not everyone with the BRCA gene mutation will go on to have serious issues. Yeah, exactly. So the challenge really is uh, how do you use this information for the public good? We don't want to stop people having breast screens and we don't want to stop people having their skin checked because we do want to find those aggressive, nasty, lethal cancers. So we just have to work out how we accommodate this two-edged sword uh, so that we can you know, give the best outcomes to the most people. And I know you're thinking about diagnostic tools. How do you imagine that might work? At the moment, many GPs and all dermatologists are using a thing called a dermatoscope. It's a little magnifying light-based instrument that magnifies spots on the skin so the doctor can get a really clear look at it. My thinking is that in the future we'll have a machine or a tool a bit like that, but it might also sample some of the tissue in a, in a sort of micro-sampling. It might stick some little needles, tiny little nano-needles into the, into the skin and sample that tissue and maybe look at a combination of the genetics of that cancer or that lesion, the immune cells around it, and maybe use some artificial intelligence or machine learning to sort of study the topography and and shape and colour of that lesion. And all of that, plus the doctor's eyes and brain, will integrate together and will say, this has got a 99% chance of being completely benign, we can leave this one, or some risk of being lethal, got to take it out. And so I, I think it'll be a combination of modalities that'll get us there, but yeah. it's it's going to take a bit of work. That's a third of people that might not have to have that invasive surgery and the cost. Yeah, look, it's true. Um, the excisions do cost a lot of money. We spend hundreds of millions of dollars a year on skin excisions, but equally uh, we spend more than that on treating people with potentially fatal melanomas, you know, with the new immunotherapy. So we don't want to be penny pinching at one end and then having to correct our mistakes later on so it's going to take a lot of work to get this right i can see you developing an app for this (laughs) not me personally (laughs) some smart boffin in our (laughs) it department can do that but yeah that that's where it'll go it'll be it'll have to integrate information from multiple sources to uh, make a decision when you get a dermatologist or a doctor and they do that device you're talking about very thick lens over you and Mm. they look very carefully and it takes a really long time what are they looking for they're looking for the shape of the melanoma they're looking for its symmetry they're looking at the edge of the of the tumor to see if it's a regular neat edge or whether it's sort of got little tentacles going out into the skin they're looking at the blood vessels underneath it to see if they're nice neat regular everyday ordinary or are they engorged tangled looking a bit nasty. They are doing a lot of sort of integration in their brain just through pattern recognition of trying to look at all those things. But they're certainly looking at colour, edge, symmetry, size, shape. 
and whether or not there are sort of globules of melanin in, in the lesion. So it takes a trained eye. And those tools have gotten better as well? They certainly have. And, you know, you can use different wavelengths of light as well to help penetrate deeper into the structures of the skin so that you can actually bounce the light down and reflect it back. So we'll get better and better at these things. You've given us so much information and so many tips and tools and so many ways to prevent melanomas on our skin in the past with your studies. Are you going to go back to this study and find more? Where are you heading next? Well, we're doing quite a few things. But yeah, look, one of the things we want to do is work with the pathologists. I think the pathologists are the people for us who can give us the best information at what's happening at a really microscopic level in these cancers and trying to work out through pattern recognition how we can diagnose lethal and non-lethal melanomas. That work will be carried forward by people with different skills to me. I can just give them the, the samples. I'm just going to take other boffins to work, work that stuff out. So we're still really interested in the genetics of melanoma as well, trying to understand or help find people who are at high risk of melanoma so they can get their prevention package sorted out early in their life and hopefully never get a melanoma. Um, so that's work we want to do. And then we're also very interested in the in how people with melanoma access the health system and who looks after them and, and what their outcomes look like down the track because it's a, you know, it's a journey for people. Are you still following those people or are you adding new people to that database as well? Both. So we are still following the people we um, recruited back in 2010. So about, there's about 38,000 people left in our cohort now because um, people have moved away and lost interest and other things, but mostly they're still there. We're still following them. We recruited another 8,000 people a couple of years ago and, and got DNA samples from those people as well. So they're being added to the follow-up and they're kind of our replication cohort. So if we find something too good to be true in this cohort, we go, we better just check it out. And we can do that in this other group of 8,000 people there so that we can always get a reality check. You know, If we see something in cohort one and we also see it in cohort two, more likely to be true or at least not wrong. Mm. So then we can feel more confident that our results are at least acceptable and we can put it out there for other people to test in independent populations somewhere else in the world. I see you every time you speak and you have enormous gratitude for those people that have helped you develop all this incredible science. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, the, the work we do, both the participants in the study and then, the, and then the, the team that works on this, is a huge team effort. But, you know, you really take your hat off to all those folks who've been filling out our questionnaires over the years and sent in saliva samples that we can analyse and repeatedly answer our surveys or you know our calls for help. So yeah, huge thanks to all of those people. And if you'd like to know more about Professor David Whiteman and his team and their work or any of our research, qimrberkhofer.edu.au. Thank you so much, David. Yeah, great pleasure. Thanks, Claire. <laughs>